Well, that's a, uh, quite a long passage. There's a number of long passages in Acts and a number of speeches, and that's one of the longer ones uh, that Peter gives. He gives, uh, I think, four speeches in Acts, and that's, I think, his last one. And uh, they're all very pivotal. And if you've been around at all for our journey through Acts so far, then you would have heard uh, that there are some different sections in Acts that we've been working through. And uh, the, generally, the, the, the book breaks into a number of sections. The first would be the first seven chapters that we've already been through, which is really about going to Jerusalem. That Jesus comes after his death, burial, and resurrection, and then um, ascends to heaven. And right before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples to go into all the world, preaching the gospel, and uh, to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which they do. And then the Holy Spirit sends them in power in Jerusalem to testify, to witness about him. And so then we see not only just this desire to talk about the gospel, but witnessing emerging in Acts. And that's what we saw uh, just a little bit ago with um, the, really the catalyst that moved the gospel from Jerusalem now into Judea and Samaria with the witness of Stephen. Witness for another word for martyr. Stephen being the first martyr of the church. So we see the, the witness movement in Acts start to happen. And we're in, we've been in the second section here from Jerusalem now to Judea, the regions around Jer- Jerusalem. And today we get into the next section, which is really the rest of the book. It's the ends of the earth. So instead of the gospel and this Jesus movement being confined to a small little place in the world, it's starting to grow and grow and grow. And this chapter in Acts is one of the most pivotal chapters for that to happen. Uh, I was actually surprised in studying for it just to realize that I haven't really thought about Acts chapter 10 as a a monumental chapter in the Bible, but it is. Uh, And it is especially for me because I'm a Gentile, uh, like many of you. And there's so much about Christianity, there's so much about the history of uh, the Christian faith and belief in Jesus that I just take for granted all the time. And this is one of those things. And I imagine for you that this is probably the same for you, uh, that if you're just reading this, hearing it, and coming to it this morning, that you would naturally take for granted that you are one of these people that just naturally grew up around Christianity, naturally heard about Jesus. Uh, it was common for you to do so. Not so with these people. Uh, today enters a, a, different, a different change in history and a different person for sure. And so we're going to explain that. But it all, just pointed out at the beginning, it all centers around prayer. It all hinges on prayer. Everything that we see today hinges on prayer. And uh, thinking about prayer, there's, there's two prayers going on, two people praying. One is Cornelius a Gentile that you saw. The other is Peter, the apostle. And as that happens, huge things shift in the history of the world. And thinking about that, I I thought about a quote from D.L. Moody, who is a uh, very godly man, theologian. He says that every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. And in this case, I would say certainly kneeling figures. There's two in view. And 
it's not really, I was talking about it just before coming up here and a friend had a good insight. It's not really so much of what that they prayed, Cornelius and Peter pray, because we don't actually see what they pray, which is kind of odd. Uh, But it's more about that they prayed. So just on the front end, knowing that everything hinges about prayer, it's not even necessarily knowing what they prayed. It's that they prayed. And I think the invitation is the same for us to join in in prayer. And so today, um, the main point that we're going to see is this, that God's purposes are accomplished through our prayers. God's purposes are accomplished through our prayers. This is what happens with Cornelius and Peter, and this is um, certainly something that needs to happen with us. And there are kind of three movements that happen through this chapter that we can, we can pull out. And I'll just give them to you on the front end, and then we'll walk through them. First is that God perplexes us in prayer by answering differently than we, than we expect. That's the first thing that happened. Second, that God prepares us through prayer for needed growth. It's another thing that they experience. And the third is that God points us with prayer to believe, share, and demonstrate the gospel. Believe, share, and demonstrate the gospel. And with that, let me go ahead and begin. That God perplexes us in prayer. So what do I mean by perplexes us? I I think we really have to get into the text to understand. We've already read it, but just to go back to the 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 first section, Acts 10, 1 through 8, there's something perplexing going on here. Uh, Cornelius is a, a Gentile, like I said, that is non-Jew. So the Jewish world really consisted of kind of two realms. There's the Jewish realm, which is God's people, and there's the Gentile realm, which is everyone who's not Jewish. And here we have in, in Acts uh, the first introduction to a, a totally different figure, and it's kind of been warming up to him. Here we have a full-blooded Gentile. Uh, Cornelius is a Roman centurion. Now, most of you probably aren't too familiar with centurions or uh, how Rome would operate back in the day, Uh, but just so you know, Cornelius here is in charge of about 100 men. He's in charge of about 100 men in Caesarea, which is a Roman outpost. It's more than an outpost. It's the prov- provincial governing head of the region. So uh, typically when Rome would conquer nations and conquer the world, the majority of the world, they always leave behind some regiment to kind of keep things in control, to keep things under their thumb. And they do that in different provinces all over the world. And in the uh, Jerusalem province, this is where they left it, Caesarea. So in Caesarea, Cornelius is stationed as a Roman centurion, over 100 men. There's six centurions in the city. So he's one of six powers in the city, if you want to think about it that way, to uh, not only just contain and control, but also, um, should any uprising happen, to squash it immediately. This is Cornelius' job. And Cornelius is um, not only just a Gentile here, the shocking thing that we see is he is basically a Jew in terms of his beliefs. Um, the, uh, the, the way that he's described in Acts is pretty incredible. That he is, um, yes, he's a centurion. Yes, he's in Caesarea. 
uh, and from Rome and all that. He's, he is the occupator in an occupation. So Jews don't like him. But at the same time, uh, in verse 2, it tells us that he is a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. These are all marks, if you were a Jew back then reading it, to say, here's a man who keeps the law of God. Here's a man who is righteous. Here's a man who, is, uh, who loves God. And at the same time, there are some things excluded from Cornelius, uh, being a Gentile here, that he, he just couldn't worship God in the way that he, he lived. So he's, supposed, he's here praying. Well, praying is good, but you're supposed to pray in Jerusalem. You're supposed to pray at the temple. And he's not. Um, furthermore, uh, he was a Gentile, so he did all sorts of things that Jews would say were not good. But at the same time, we see later on that he was well thought of by the entire Jewish nation. When Jews even thought of this man, they thought, that's a guy that loves God. But at the same time, only loved God as far as he could. And so he has desires. Like I said, he has a prayer, but we're not exactly sure what his prayer is. I'm sure it was a number of different things. Psalm 122 is one of the common prayers that people would pray for Jerusalem in particular. And it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. And this is probably something that he prayed. Even though he's an occupator in this country, he is at the same time praying for this country and this nation. He is, he is a man who fears God, even though he doesn't necessarily know God. He could have been praying a number of different things. He could have been praying for uh, the poor as he's giving to the poor. He could have been praying for his enemies uh, or any, any other, other number of things lined out in the Old Testament. He apparently knew a fair amount of the Old Testament and how to worship God. So why review that? It's because Cornelius is situated here as a man who, who fears God, wants to respect God, but doesn't actually know him intimately. And he's asking to. He wants to. So he's praying. He's trying to be religious. He's trying to be de devout. And here we have the, the first episode of where God just comes in and busts things up. Uh, he's praying, and then an angel comes to visit him. And the angel visits him, and his response is essentially, what? I mean, if you're reading it in his response, uh, that's what happens. He's praying, and then all of a sudden, he just says, what? <laughs> what is it, Lord? Uh, is a little more literal. He, he's so shocked, he's just, he doesn't know what to say, um, and Anytime you see angels show up in the Bible, they are terrifying. Like, make people wet their pants. I mean, they, they have no idea what to do when an angel shows up. They start saying all kinds of weird things. Uh, and this happens with Cornelius, even though he's in charge of 100 men. He's a military man. And, um, and he is astounded. He's perplexed. He's been praying. He's been asking. And then God answers him with something he does not expect at all. And he's not the only one. Uh, he gets the instruction, of course, from the angel to send men to Joppa to pick up Peter. And he does. He doesn't know why, other than he's, Peter's got a word to share with him. And he's sitting there, we see, for four days confused in Caesarea, wondering why in the world God is doing this. 
And it's not only Cornelius. The same thing happens with Peter. Peter is praying, goes up onto a rooftop, prays, and as he prays, uh, all of a sudden, he's hungry, and he kind of falls asleep, falls into a trance. And uh, if I, I imagine if I was like Peter, uh, he probably could have been hangry. I mean, it's very possible. Uh, but he kind of falls asleep, and he you would just naturally probably read this to say, oh, well, he's, he's falling asleep dreaming about food. It's kind of sensible. Um, but it's way more than that, way more than that. Peter sees a vision of a sheep coming down from heaven, all sorts of animals in it, and then the sheep going back up uh, and the command for him to kill and eat. And then, of course, his response is, no, I'm not going to do that because all of those animals are unclean according to Jewish law. And then the response is, don't call unclean what I make clean. That happens three times. And so he's sitting there, and in, the, in verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what was the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent from Cornelius, they came. So Peter here is in the same boat, ironically, as Cornelius. He's praying, he sees a vision, and then he sits there wondering what in the world just happened. Um, and I don't know about you, but this, uh, I haven't had that experience for sure. I would, I would tell you if I did, because that'd be amazing. But there's so many times that I've been praying about any number of things, and I just do not get the answers I expect. I really don't. And this is the same thing with Cornelius, the same thing with Peter, that God perplexes us in prayer by answering differently than we expect. It happens all the time. And I'm sure it happens with you too. It's not just with them. It's not just with me. Uh, it's often with us. That any number of things could be going on. That you really have great, deep desires to do something for God. Like something just not kind of normal, not average, but something incredible. Something amazing. And you just don't have the opportunity. Or maybe it's a loved one that... You just wish they had their health back. They're having some kind of sickness. They're in pain. Or you're single and you want to get married. There are any number of things that we go to God for in prayer. And often, often, I think the normal that God gives us is that in prayer, we do not get what we want. At least immediately what we want. And that is very much to God's plan. The first, as we see with, with Cornelius and Peter, they're perplexed. And, and then later on in Acts 10, we see in that next section in verses 9 to 23, the men come to Peter and they tell him what's going on because he doesn't know. And then the Spirit has to tell him after he sees the vision to go and to not hesitate. Or a different translation, you would say to not discriminate. Peter here has Gentiles coming to him and he says, I'm not going to go with those guys. Why are they here? I don't want to talk to them. He's discriminating in himself, and so the Spirit tells him, don't, don't do that. Be open, listen, be ready, and go. And this is what God often tells to us, that as we're perplexed, as we're asking for things, then God is normally working. He's doing something that we just don't even understand. And this is true for them. It's true for us. One time, I, um, I, uh, this has been a number of times, but 
Sometimes it's things that are lighthearted, sometimes it's not. Uh, but I've had a number of family members pass away, and with all of them, with all of them sitting in the hospital, making the long drive to go to their house, to meet with them, whatever it is, uh, to go to someone's house, every time that happens, I'm praying. I'm praying, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why this is happening the way it's happening. I wish it was different. Would you heal this person? And it doesn't happen. And I'm sitting there often perplexed. And I imagine that you've often been there, that things have happened in your life that don't make any sense. But that's often, ironically, when God is moving the most. You see, for Peter, for Cornelius, when they're confused, when they don't know what's going on, is at the very inception of some huge change that God is bringing in their life. And it's the same for us. I find it particularly difficult to engage with God in prayer at times like this, though. Tim Keller, uh, in his book on prayer, points this out. He, he says that there's nothing to fear in prayer. God will not give us anything contrary to his will, and that will always include what is best for us in the long run. You see, when I pray and I'm going through difficult circumstances and I don't get the answers I expect, my default position is to say, I shouldn't pray anymore. I shouldn't trust God with that. I'm just going to get a no, or I'm not going to get an answer, or I'm not going to get what I want. And yeah, it could be something trivial. It could be something uh, meaningless. It could be for a boat. It could be for a bigger house. It could be for things like that. But that's also exactly true of things that you consider the more weighty matters. Things like family members' salvation or people's health. And we just don't often get that. And and the response that I realize that is often a trigger for me in this, and I imagine it's for you too, is when it happens that you don't get what you expect, then you kind of start to, to slip and you start to compromise and you start to figure out, well, I don't even know if I should pray. Nothing will probably happen. But still, these men do. And they're not giving up. And so for you, do you pray? Are you willing to do that? Or are you afraid to pray because you won't get what you want or you won't get what you expect? Or another question for you, are you currently perplexed on the things that are happening in your life? Be encouraged. This may be the time that God is doing something that you completely don't expect but will be better for you than you can imagine. And that's the first thing that we see, that God perplexes us often by prayer. Not only that, but he often uses that, that perplexity to change us and prepare us for needed growth. And that's the second thing that we see here. And we'll pick up in Acts chapter 10, verse 23. That the next day he arose, so Peter makes the trek from Joppa to Caesarea, And he's there in verse 24. And on the following day, they entered. And Cornelius was expecting them, who had been expecting them, called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. You see, God prepares us through prayer for needed growth. 
and Cornelius needed it desperately. Here he is, somebody who, who fears God in one sense but doesn't know him, needs growth. In fact, he needs a new birth. And so he brings in, God brings in Peter to tell him the gospel. That he, he, invited, he invited Peter into Cornelius' life to give him the gospel. And as we see Cornelius, like his theological frame, framework is really questionable. <laughs> really questionable. He comes, uh, he sees Peter, and then he falls down at Peter's feet and he worships Peter. Uh, the word in Greek can be translated a couple different ways, but the point is to say that he is worshiping. Cornelius here is worshiping another man. And it's common in Roman culture to have a number of beliefs about the gods coming down from heaven, living among you, and all that sort of thing. And Cornelius's theological framework here is it's, it's broken. It's messed up. That he has things he needs to learn about God. He doesn't even think correctly of God. And so Peter picks him up and tells him, don't worship me. I'm a man just like you are. Cornelius needs growth. Whether it's just his theological framework or the actual believing and knowing the message of salvation, there's growth needed here for Cornelius, but there's also, ironically, growth for Peter. You see, God brings Peter in, and if I was Peter I'd, and I finally started to figure out what was going on, then I would probably think, okay, God's bringing me here just to do something for them. But that's not it. God also brings Peter in to do something for himself. In verse 27, Peter says, uh, it says, And he talked with him, that's Cornelius, and went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without hesitation, without objection. I asked then, why you sin for me. So Peter doesn't even know. He still doesn't know. He's still perplexed. But he does acknowledge that there's something going on here that is new to him and God is teaching him. You see, God is orchestrating things for the unbeliever here to hear the gospel. But God is also orchestrating things for Peter. Peter desperately needed growth as well. If you don't know anything about Peter, you hear some stories about him later on in the New Testament. Uh, but Peter had severe racist tendencies. When it came down to it, Peter did not like spending time with people who were non-Jews. He had a sense of cultural, natural, national, and religious pride that was sinful. And here's the difficult thing. God had commanded that. And so Peter, in one sense, leverages God's command for his own personal preferences. Peter is the one here who's coming uh, to realize that God has chosen people from all nations to be found in Jesus, and it's not just the Jews. And it's difficult for him. It's very difficult. Um, it's, it's hard for us to understand exactly what Peter is going through because we don't have it in our current, current modern day. You see, uh, there's a number of examples that were happening at the time, but to be Jewish was to be Jewish and nothing else. And so for Peter, 
there were two things you could not do. Two things you could not do as a Jew with the rest of the world. You could not share a meal with them. So you couldn't have any food. You couldn't buy food from them. You couldn't eat food from them. And the second thing was that you could not go into their house. You couldn't stay at their house. You couldn't visit them in their house. You couldn't do anything like that. If you did, you would be ceremonially unclean. Uh, You would have a stigma attached to you. You would be taboo. It wasn't right. So here we see that Peter, God is using Peter. He's forcing Peter to cross boundaries that he never thought he should cross or he would cross in his life. God is stripping the racist tendencies from Peter. And we see this, that God's so patient and kind in doing so. Uh, A number of things happen here. First, he's going from Jerusalem to Samaria. Another thing is that he he not only gets out of Jerusalem into an area that has more Gentiles in it, but that he also lived, he, he lived with Simon the Tanner, who was Jewish, but Simon has an occupation involving dead animals, which the law says you can't be around. So Simon here is living with Peter, and Peter is in a position where he, he's gone as far as he can go to share the gospel, and he doesn't think he can go any further, but still God sends men to him, gives him a vision. He tells him by his spirit not to discriminate. God knows all the all the instruction that Peter needs to move him into his will. And so he does that. And Peter now is doing something ceremonially taboo. He should not do this. He should not be in Cornelius' house, yet he's there. And he's there because he realizes God has changed things in the world. God's been gracious with Peter to help him see that. The bigger issue going on between Jews and Gentiles with this is that they would not associate with one another or they could not in some instances associate with one another think about it if you if you know somebody if you see someone or you're trying to tell someone else like yeah i know them they're my friend or i've how do you do it what are the proofs that you give say well i i had a meal with them or i went to their house or i've been in their house or you could combine them say i had dinner with them at their house Those are things that we say to communicate to everyone else around us that they are on some level acceptable to us, that we will spend time with them. And these are the things that Peter was forbidden to do. And then God says, no, go and do it because he's made everyone clean through his son. So Peter here, Peter here is getting a real education in God's will. And God's being slow and patient with him to help him see these things. And so whether it's Cornelius or Peter, they're growing. They need growth. And so the question for you, the question for me is the same. In what areas of your life do you see that God is leading you to grow? Can you see ways that God wants you to change to become more like Christ in your life? Right now, can you see those? Can you see God orchestrating things to teach you lessons to help you be more kind to other people or more loving or more understanding? Those are the things that you should not stiff arm. Those are the things that you should embrace and that you should seek for God to tell you how he's instructing you, what he's wanting you to do. 
And the ramifications of joining in on that are immense. Because it's not just for you, like we see with Peter, it's for Peter as well. It's not just for other people. So we see that God perplexes often people through prayer. He also prepares them through prayer for growth that they need. This is what God does. But not only that, God points people. He points people with prayer to believe, share, and demonstrate the gospel. What do I mean by God pointing people? Well, that's in the next section here. So Peter comes to Cornelius and he hears the story that God brought them together for this time and in perhaps the most uh, dramatic opportunity of evangelism in history, Peter comes to this house with Cornelius, his whole family, and tons of close friends, and he says, God told me that you have something to say to us. What do you have to say? And Peter here, I mean, you can't, you can't get an easier opportunity than this. I mean, you have the room already set. You have the people in the room. All Peter has to do is open his mouth, and that's what he does in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter is starting to learn. The phrase, so Peter opened his mouth, the opened his mouth part is a way of, uh, it's almost like a vow in the scriptures. Anytime that phrase is used, it's a way of saying, whatever is about to be said is of such significance that no one should forget it. It will in fact change the course of history. And that's what he does. Is he, he says that now I understand. God doesn't show partiality. And not only that, but then he also says, a number of things to communicate the gospel to them. So in verses 36 to 43, Peter just opens his mouth and he starts talking. And he doesn't stop. He says, for the word, as for the word that he sent to Israel, that's God preaching, God sending the word, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. And so these people know, Peter says, he, these people know about Jesus and what he's been doing. Not only that, that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and they are witnesses. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from raised him on the third day from from the dead. You see, Peter here is the opportunity when he can talk about anything is he takes to talk about the gospel. And it's not even just the, the most minute aspect of the gospel. Peter doesn't come to them and just say, Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Amen. Goodbye. No, he... he he talks a little bit more about it. He gives them historical context. He tells them, you know about these things. You've heard about them. And then as he's talking about Jesus as the Christ on the cross, raised to new life, then he also says he's the judge of the living and the dead. He's going to judge me. He's going to judge you. And he would undoubtedly keep speaking here. But the last thing that he says is to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter finishes uh, 
even though he probably had more to say, he finishes his statement saying, all of the Old Testament scriptures, everything that I grew up hearing, everything that we grew up learning, speaks of this man and his work, his saving work. And that's the thing that catalyzes the new movement of God in the world. In verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Why are they amazed? Because something has changed in the history of the world. You see, some people call this the Gentile Pentecost. In Acts 2, we have the Holy Spirit coming on the Jewish believers and then moving out from Jerusalem in power to talk about Jesus. In Acts 10, we have a similar thing happen, but it's not for the Jews. They've already heard. Here, it's for the Gentiles. And if you haven't gotten it yet, unless you're Jewish, that's you and me. That here, in Acts 10, is one of the most important historical points in history for you and for me. And it happened because Peter here was willing to open his mouth and share the gospel. And something strange happens, something almost unprecedented happens here when he does. He can't even finish the speech. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile believers now, and they start speaking about God and honoring him and extolling him. And so Peter's response is, who's going to hold water from these people? Who's going to keep them from being baptized? They obviously have the Holy Spirit. And the reason that they receive the Spirit in this way, and why it doesn't normally happen outside of this, is because this is the last change in the history of the world. This is the last movement of God to change things, and it needs special significance. It needs special signage. And the, the Jews that came with Peter, they recognize that this is amazing. And they say, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. A, gen, a Gentile was commonly referred to as Jewish people as dogs. The Gentile dogs. And they don't say that here, do they? They just say the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. No dogs anymore. They're a part of the family. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And so Peter here, Peter here, is amazed as well, and he will not hold back the powerful movement of God. He recognizes that something has happened, even though it's different than he expected, different than he ever thought possible, that now, not just through Judaism, by keeping civil and religious and ceremonial laws, could Gentiles come to God, but only on the basis of faith. And this is our hope, that it is only on the basis of faith through Jesus' work on the cross, that we can come to God, not a part of any works done by man. And Peter embraces this wholeheartedly. So what do we have to learn from this truth? That God points us with prayer to believe, share, and demonstrate the gospel. Three things as we close. Number one, that you have to believe first. You see, Peter Certainly, he believes the gospel. He knows Jesus. He believes he's Lord of all things. But at the same time, he has to believe that this gospel goes to all the nations. And if he doesn't, he doesn't believe the gospel. 
You see, Peter had to first believe that God was not partial and wants all people to come to himself. Say it this way, if we don't believe, then we won't go. If we don't believe, then we won't go. If we believe God is partial, we will not go. If we believe God is not partial, then we will tell other people about him. You could take the converse of that to say it's the opposite. If we don't go, then we don't believe. So I ask you, when's the last time you shared the gospel? When's the last time over coffee or with a neighbor or a coworker that you just made the effort and you said, God is not partial, therefore I'm not going to be partial. God wants people to hear about Jesus, therefore I'm going to tell people about Jesus. First, Peter had to believe, not just in the gospel, but that all peoples need to hear this message. Second is sharing. So believe first, share second. You see, Peter had to second share the gospel with his mouth. Now, I'm sure a lot of you grew up with this sort of understanding or hearing this, that shared the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Uh, that is, some of the intention in that I think is good. It is mostly an anti-biblical statement, mainly because of what we see here with Peter. These people, the, the entire thing is leading Peter to these people that have to hear in their ears the words that Peter is saying with his mouth about Jesus. It is a necessity for people to hear the gospel and hear you talk about the gospel. So if we don't tell people about Jesus with our words, they won't be saved. That's what's at stake here. That's what's going on. Not to say, of course, that we save people, but it is to say that if we don't talk about Jesus, if we don't talk about his saving work on the cross, about how he's changing our lives, about how he has changed our lives, then they won't know. They won't hear and they won't be changed. So you have to believe first. You have to share second. But not only that, the thing that we probably would easily miss here at the very end is that you have to have fellowship third. And we see this in the last verse. Can anyone withhold water from baptizing them? He says they should be included. And then, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. You see, this dividing wall of hostility, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, has been torn down. For the first time in history, Peter is going to sit in a Gentile's house and eat some bacon with him. Praise God for bacon. This is what's happening. And it's not just about trying to signify something with your, your actions. It, it's about fellowshipping with people. You see, if we don't befriend and mentor brothers and sisters, we invalidate the gospel. That's what's going on here. Peter's agreement to stay with them was an agreement to step out of his preconceived historical ideals about what pleases God, to step into a new reality of what God had commanded was good and right, and to say, I'm going to associate with those people now. I don't care what everyone else thinks. I want to obey God. And that, that is what validates the gospel message. You see, if Peter ended up going through this, if he believed the gospel, yeah, go share the gospel with him, talk with him. And if he 
if he actually did that with his mouth and he did not stay with them, what would he be communicating? This isn't real. God has accepted you, but I won't accept you. That's what he would be communicating. And that's what we cannot do. We cannot do that, not only to unbelievers and being willing to talk with them and share Christ with them and have meals with them and go have dinner in their houses and encounter their worldviews and talk to them about their need for Jesus. But we also have to do that with one another. If we do not extend fellowship to one another, we invalidate the gospel message because God has extended friendship to us. We see Luke writing in Acts here that some key things to take away for us are that you have to believe the gospel first, not just for yourself, but for other people. You have to share it, and you have to invite other people into your life and fellowship. And these are the things that God is doing, pointing us with prayer. You see, if Cornelius, if Peter, if they had not have been praying, again, not so much what they prayed, that they prayed, if they hadn't been praying, they would have missed it. They would have not been able to hear what God wanted of them and what he was doing in the world. God's purposes are accomplished through our prayers. He doesn't do it outside of them. He does it with them. Closing thought, one of the ways you can think about this is what John Wesley used to say about prayer, that God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. God does nothing but by prayer and everything with it. And he certainly did for them. And I pray he does for us. Let's pray.